I'm going to open up uh, Matthew's Gospel again. We're in chapter 11. If you'd be looking there with me. Matthew chapter 11. We're opening up a section on what Jesus does in front of us, which is preaching. It's a section on Jesus preaching. It's almost like you're able to dial his preaching up and watch it live stream or on YouTube to see him through the eyes of faith in preaching, to listen to what he says, to kind of understand and hear what might be the tone and tenor of what he's saying, and to, to watch him preach is a privilege. But the tone that he takes is one that is not very popular in today's culture. Today's culture wants more easy listening preaching, soft preaching, which I would argue makes hard hearts, and Jesus takes the other path, which is hard preaching, to make soft hearts. Jesus is a judgment preacher. Yes, he preaches grace. Yes, he preaches come to me. Yes, he preaches a yoke that is easy, a burden that's light. Yes, he wept over Jerusalem. He's the tender, gentle, and lowly intercessor, high priest, shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. He's God who is love. He demonstrates love. He's courageous in love. I understand all of that. But to a sleeping culture, one of the most loving things that he can do is say, wake up, wake up, and see what's really going wrong. Wake up, you're asleep. You need to wake up before it's too late. Wake up before you harden up and you end up in in eternal hell. Wake up and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Wake up and join the fellowship. Join the Christian fellowship. Join the loving communion of the saints. But if you don't, there's sure and certain doom. So many things in our culture that have Awaken us, they've awakened us to how extreme things can get so quickly. The pandemic, the rallies, the marches, the different things that have happened, cities that were burning not too long ago um, in our country. There's our, there are wars that I've mentioned and the war between Ukraine and Russia. These dynamics where people are dying, people going into eternity, they wake us up. There are deaths that happen where people suddenly die. There are births that happen where suddenly people are alive. It's as if the ambulance that's taking the pregnant woman who's giving birth to the hospital passes the hearse on the way to the burial ground and life is happening. Life is a vapor. It appears for what? A little while and it vanishes away. Life is here and then it is gone and there is eternity. And so for our culture... For our world, it needs to wake up. It needs to see that Jesus is alive and powerful and he's authoritative and he's coming as king but also as judge. And this is not a wake-up call just for the world. It's a wake-up call for the church. I was challenged when I was down at the Shepherds Conference um, to do the work of an evangelist. And that challenge is given to preachers There were 4,000 of us listening to it, but it's to preachers to go into churches and call sleeping individuals to wake up because you might not yet be awake in the Lord. It's important to know that 
God will require of us an account. There's a day of reckoning that is coming. And it's appointed unto man once to die. And then after that, the judgment. Many will say, Lord, Lord, I did this. I did that. I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons. I taught your word. I prophesied. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus preached love, but he also preached judgment. The very thing that our world is so offended by in judgment or criticism is the very thing that our world most needs to hear. What's most offensive is most necessary right now. It was necessary in that generation. It's necessary for our generation. If you didn't um, live stream into the Shepherds Conference, it would be good, I would recommend, for you to peruse the website, the 2022 Shepherds Conference. It'll probably be in a couple weeks when they post the sermons, maybe a week, I'm not sure, you can download the app, but I'm not here to give an infomercial, I'm just stirred by some of the preaching that happened, and one of the sermons was by a man named Vody Bauckham, and he's been in Alaska, and he's preached here a couple, not in this pulpit yet, but he's been up in Alaska preaching, and um, he's a good guy, uh, very theologically strong, but the last five minutes of his sermon is kind of a mic drop moment, and I would recommend you hear that. One of the things that he says regularly, and I think said in that sermon, is that our culture is given to a new commandment. It's what he's calling facetiously the 11th commandment. And it is, thou shalt be nice. It's that we are, we are conscripted to be nice by our culture. If we're not nice, we're judgy. We're judgy. We're mean. We're, we're saying offensive things. And I'm not saying we're, not, we're supposed to be rude. We are supposed to be kind one to another. We're supposed to be loving. We, we show the love of Christ by loving one another. We need to have good reputations with the culture. But there's this sort of um, agenda out there to hold us hostage that the culture is a victim. And we need to respond to that in um, niceness and walk on eggshells. I'm reminded of this regularly when I go through the drive through and McDonald's, and I have my kids in the car with me, and I just am ordering a fry, or I'm saying, hey, I want medium, not large, or whatever, and I'm talking like this, and afterwards, it's like, dad, you need to be nice. You need to be kind to these workers, and I get that, and I know it's sort of an awkward moment, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, our, told, our culture is touchy and sensitized, and a message like this one, where it's saying, look, you have to repent, or judgment is coming, is a message that our culture needs to hear and watch this. Our church needs to hear it. Our church needs to hear it. We are the preachers of judgment. We are the prophets in Jesus' wake. We are the ones who carry the message that he carried. And our culture says, Ichabod, that's without glory. That's not fair. That's not good. The woke agenda is, is out there and still loudly saying they have a take on our culture. They know the way that things ought to be. They know the difference between right and wrong, and they really don't. It's an anti-God Marxist movement. It's one that I was talking in the pre-sermon group with some men, and Oleg, you, you were there, and Oleg said, look, 50 years ago, Russia um, you know, presented a woke movement, and the proletariat were the blue-collar workers underneath the oligarch were, oligarch were doing the same thing. Nothing new under the sun. We are victims to our own sin, not victims to what we never did against someone. We're victims, we're all victims to our own sin. The real issue in our culture 
that it is asleep by, the, the sleeping pill within our culture, the, the, the thing that is keeping people underneath alertness is simply this. It's their own sin. It's sin. Sin is what keeps us asleep. Sin is what makes people ignore God. And this is why Jesus preached judgment. The fossil fuel of this new day, these new agendas, is simply sin. I was talking to my kids last night from Genesis 3. I was doing a devotion with them, the youngsters in my home. And I was just reading Genesis 3. And it's so profound to see how clear it is. It's clearly explained why things are wrong in our world. And it's people choosing their own flesh over God. They're choosing sin and their own evil desires over the Lord. They have no moral compass. Our government is always choosing wrong. Families are confused. Families are gender confused, blurring the line between gender identity and saying, this is on you to understand. This is your fault for not being kind to me about that. It's on you. Well, is it? Is it on us when our world goes upside down and goes anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, self, 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 I love myself, I want for me. That's what our culture is saying. It's what it's always said. It just has new titles and new defense mechanisms. And it's calling for the church to perform penance rather than repentance. I'm putting you in a cage of responsibility to ask forgiveness for things you never did. And it's all a defense mechanism so people can be governed and feel safe within their own sin. The whole do-gooding social gospel movement, social justice movement, is this subtle form of satanic penance that is guilt-laden upon the church to say, if we just incorporate this in the gospel, then we'll make everybody feel okay in a culture where we're supposed to be on eggshells. It's not a good thing. We need to be able to say what the Bible says. We need to say that Jesus is holy and Jesus is loving and Jesus is gracious and Jesus will forgive you and Jesus loves you and Jesus made you and Jesus is God and Jesus is king and Jesus is a warrior and Jesus will slay his enemies and Jesus will send people who do not repent to him to an eternal hell and he's Lord over heaven and he's Lord over hell. And he is our God with whom we have to do, with whom we will give an account. This is the gospel. The gospel is the grace to get out of our sin, to come out from under the penalty of our sin, to be made right with God, reconciled with God, given the free grace of the gospel by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is what we have to be able to say if we're going to truly be loving to help people. We have to preach a hard message. It's the message that Jesus commissioned his 12 apostles that he named out by name. We went through that whole thing in Matthew 10 where he called them out and said, go to the cities around Capernaum, these Jewish, predominantly Jewish cities, and preach this gospel, this message. And he sent them out there and they preached a hard message. And Jesus, as a good war general, says, not only am I sending you out to the lost sheep of Israel, I'm going to go with you and I'll go first. I'll preach. That's where we find him in chapter 11. John the Baptist, the forerunner, is in jail and Jesus is out in the populace and he's preaching. He's preaching this hard message. This is the sermon content of what the apostles were saying and what Jesus was saying. This is our, our, our ability to read in and see the sermon. 
that Jesus called the apostles to do and that Jesus is preaching himself. He preached judgment. Why do we preach judgment? This is the question of our text. Why preached Why preach judgment? Let me read to you our text with that question in mind. Verse 16. What, but what shall I compare this generation? But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We play the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's stop there. Um, First and foremost, I want you to see that this generation... In Jesus' day is the same as our generation in our day. There's nothing new under the sun. The hearts transfer from generation to generation to generation. The message that Jesus gave to them is the same message that we need to give to our generation today. That we need to hear from Jesus as part of this generation today. So these generations are transparent with one another. Our generation, point one, why do you preach judgment? Because our generation acts like children. Our generation acts like children, not in a good way, but in a bad way. There's good children talk in the Bible and bad children talk in the Bible. We're going to talk about that. Children are precious. Children are wonderful. Children are loving. Children are gracious. Children are cuddly. Children poop and pee in their pants. Children scream bloody murder in the middle of the night. Children are inconsolable. Children are colicky. Children are rebellious. This is therapy for me. I had six of them. Children keep you up in the night, right? They, they throw fits and tantrums in the store. You know, I've heard it said that uh, if a little baby could raise a gun up, it would kill you at times because they, they just, you know, they want what they want and they're desperate for it. If they don't eat, they're like, man, I have no recourse. I'm going to die. I'm desperate and I'm bound in sin and I don't even know it. Um, the Bible calls, um, calls unbelievers children of wrath for a reason. Children of the darkness. Children are interesting. But in this context, these are not baby children. These are middle schoolers. So we're talking, I'm beating up middle schoolers this morning. This is the 6th, 7th, and 8th grader or whatever. You know, this is the middle schooler on the playground that's doing sing-song back and forth to each other about what they're mocking and what they're ignoring. And the first point um, that... The children need to hear is that you can't ignore the Lord. Why do you preach judgment? Because our children, because the generation acts like children and they're ignoring the Lord, verses 16 and 17. They are indifferent. This sermon is about two sins primarily. You can write them down maybe at the top of your page. If you miss this, then you miss the whole point of the sermon. I didn't do my job. Number one, the sin of indifference is really bad. Being blase with the Lord. That's what Jesus is about to, and you're going to see he indicts here in his sermon. He indicts indifference. The second sin is presumption. It's being presumptuous that, hey, I can hear all the revelation about Jesus and do nothing with it. That's, those are the two hitters. That's what you need to be kind of grinding on and working on in the back of your mind as you hear the explanation. Indifference, being indifferent to the Lord, really bad. Being presumptuous over the Lord's grace, really bad. 
And so indifference. Children are using a smoke smoke screen as they banter back and forth on the playground. That's verse 17. Um, And really what they're saying is, I am indifferent about the Lord. I want what I want and I want to be left alone. So Jesus is comparing these to children, not children in a good way, the little ones of Matthew chapter 10. Um, You see that at the end of the text that to be a strong believer, you are um, called a little one who who would give a cup of water in the name of the Lord, verse 42. You're... um, You're precious in the sight of God if you are a child. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. And he he calls people like children to come and sit up on his lap. Forbid not the children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. But he also, well, Paul in the New Testament also says that children are um, those who are immature. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, childish 1 Corinthians 14, 20, children in their thinking. They, you need to come out of that. Be infants in evil and let your thinking be mature. Ephesians 4, 14, do, no, do no, no longer be like a child tossed to and fro by the wind of every doctrine, false doctrine. So what are they saying? What are these children saying? This generation, it's sitting in the marketplace, verse 16, back to Matthew 11. They're calling to their playmates. So they're just bantering back and forth to each other. And they say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. They're basically talking about the high highs of life and the low lows of life and saying, look, I don't care about either one. I don't care if it's really a great celebration going on. Eh, I don't care. I know you've never seen a child do that, right? You're like, hey, come on, join the party. Everybody's dancing here at the wedding. It's great. Have some cake. (sighs) Whatever. Whatever. I don't care. I'm just sitting here, you know, like I'm indifferent to you and you can't touch me. You can't do a thing about it. Right. That's that's the mockery of a child in that situation. Or there's a funeral and and they don't care. There's the high, high, the big party, and the low, low. And this is all compared to Jesus saying, look, there's healing ministry. There's grace here. There's truth. Come to me. And that's the high, high, the joys of Jesus. Join Jesus Christ. What does the culture do? I'm 12. I'm acting like a 12-year-old, and I don't care about Jesus. And I don't care about the Bible. And I don't care about fellowship. And I'm not just preaching to the world. I'm preaching to the church. Then you have the low lows, a funeral. Somebody dies. You have death. The person goes, I don't care. There's weeping. There's dynamic. You say, it's heavy, but I don't care. That's the comparison to John the Baptist. The wrath of God is coming. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lamb of God so that... He takes away the sins of the world in your life. Believe on Jesus. I don't care. Judgment is coming. People are dying in Ukraine. That's what death looks like. This is what's happening in our world. People are dying of sickness. Things are happening. So what? That's what it means to be asleep spiritually. Unbelievers asleep in danger of eternal death in hell. Believers rejecting the Lord during this time, grieving the Holy Spirit. 
perhaps bringing calamity upon themselves as punishment in their own life, where the Lord is saying, wake up, wake up, and wake up. So the extreme circumstances, the highs and lows are things that people talked about, like Spurgeon, he said, therefore the Lord likens them, the children sitting in the marketplaces where they were asked to play by their fellows. Hey, come on, play. But they could never agree upon the game. If certain children would imitate a wedding and begin to pipe or play the flute, others would dance. And when they proposed a funeral, they began to mourn and began to mourn. Others would not lament. They wouldn't dance and they wouldn't cry. They were disagreeable, sullen, and captiously resolved to reject every offer. It's a sing-song commentary on how our culture is desensitized to Christ, desensitized to truth, numbed in their moral sensitivities. They are indifferent. They're indifferent. They're self-condemned, bound up in this indictment. If you don't wake up, you harden up. Listen to what Barclay said, and it's interesting. Barclay is dead. He's gone. But though he's dead, he now speaks. It's as if he wrote this yesterday about our culture today. Jesus was saddened by sheer perversity of human nature. To him, men seemed to be like children playing in a village. One group said, come on, let us play at weddings. The other said, we don't feel like um, being happy today. Then the first group said, all right, come on, let's play at funerals. And the other said, we don't feel like being sad today. They're just like Scots that are called contrarians. <laughs> no matter what was suggested, They didn't want to do it. No matter what was offered, they found fault in it. The plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to truth, they will easily enough find an excuse for not listening to it. They will not even try to be consistent in their criticisms. They'll criticize the same person and the same institution from quite opposite grounds. They'll hit it one way or they'll hit it another way. Stubbornly unresponsive, no matter what the invitation that is made to them. Grown men and grown women can be like spoiled children who refuse to play no matter what the game is. People want it both ways. In our culture, they flip the script and they contradict themselves in another way. Think about it. All the isolation, all the, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get in your face. You don't get in mine. I understand there's debate on sickness and all that, but all the isolation and all the push for that and all the pressure of that coming down from governing authority, isolate, 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 as if to ignore all the suicide, ignore all the depression, ignore all the hardship, ignore all the dynamics that were going on. And then when the BLM rallies were going, ah, they're getting together. It's so great. Isn't it wonderful? Even people burning cities, I'm just going to look the other way and it's just awesome. What What a wild contradiction that went on in our culture can tell I've just been to Shepherd's Conference, but I'm a little fired up. And it's just the text that, that says, listen, wake up. We need to be able to supersede and get above these debates and say, the issue is sin and the solution is Jesus. And he's coming back and he's going to solve it one way or the other with you. You're not going to go unsolved. You're not an unsolved math problem throughout all eternity. There is no neutral, no nirvana, no stasis, no annihilationalism. You don't just to not, you don't get to not exist. You will be resurrected to life or to death forever and ever. We need to hear judgment. I mean, I, I'm just sort of, sort of on the other side of this in my own heart. I was at cars and I was checking out and 
my wife and I were having fun, you know, on sort of the cars, the cars date. I saw some people there that were there at the same time, you know, you get away, what do you do? You, you shop for dinner and have some fun. So we're just talking and Judy was checking out on, on one end and I, and it was just a young person. So she was talking to him or whatever. And I went to the other side. I said, look, I'll be the bagger today. Cause he was bagging. I said, give me the bags. I said, I haven't seen paper bags in so long. I'm, I'm slapping around, making noise and putting stuff in because I mean, remember the, the world took away our bags for a while. We couldn't even have plastic. It's killing animals, killing our planet. Oh wait, we're all sick. Let's get bags again. I mean, it's like, and I'm like, woo, I like my bag. You know, I'll put my food in myself today. Freedom. But really, the freedom is in the Lord, no matter what is going on out there. No matter what's happening in our woke world that really needs to be awakened to Jesus. That's it. We're not woke to every, everybody's penance gospel. Hey, if you do enough for me, if you, if you say you're sorry enough, then you'll be okay with me. That, that doesn't work. It's repent before the Lord and be free in the gospel and then love everybody, no matter what they do to you or say to you. Love them. Love them. Love them to Jesus. How do you love them? Sometimes you give a strong rebuke. First of all, they were ignoring the Lord. This generation is ignoring the Lord. That's verses 16 and 17. And then verses 18 and 19, they're mocking the Lord. Mocking the Lord. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Stop there. John the Baptist has a demon. That's the, that's the assault on Jesus's messenger. So to mock John is really to mock Jesus. To mess with John is to mess with Jesus. To try to um, discredit John the Baptist is to try to discredit the gospel message that Jesus was giving. John the Baptist, Nazarite, vow taker, let his hair grow long, uh, abstain from fine foods. He's eaten off the land, eaten off the wilderness, eaten the locusts and honey. He's um, dressed in camel's fur. He's a prophet, the last Old Testament prophet, preaching Jesus as the forerunner for Christ. We learned about his doubts, but Jesus defended him even through his doubts, saying this man is a great man because he is humble and he is someone who is taking the kingdom of God by force. Verse 12, he is the example of someone who has suffered violence. He's in prison. He's going to be killed. He's going to be martyred for the faith. The kingdom of God is taken by violent force, which isn't sinful aggression. It's just being aggressive, being willing to be accused, being willing to suffer for Jesus, putting yourself out there. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist abstaining from wine, abstaining from alcohol, abstaining so that he can preach, separating so he can separate the message, putting himself on the line. Who is he? He's a demon. It's like when the Pharisees attributed Jesus' miracles to Satan, saying that he was casting out demons by Beelzebub, which Jesus is going a house divided can't stand. You can't pit Satan against Satan, so what are you doing? But even worse than that, your hearts are so hardened that you're beyond the point of repentance. You have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. All other sins can be forgiven, but not this one. They were too far gone. And these, in this culture are dangerously close, saying that holiness, which John the Baptist represented in separation, holiness is demonic. Holiness is wrong. If you're abstaining from sin, you must have a demon. 
It's just super weird. Super weird. They were basically saying that John the Baptist is like the demoniacs that came out of the caves at the Gennesaret. You're too Spartan. You're too rigid. Abstaining from eating and drinking. You're an aesthetic. You're not of God. You're crazy. We have to be careful of this. What they were basically doing is they're trying to have it both ways. Uh, It's the two extremes to say, John, you are demonic for your separation. And Jesus, you are worldly because of your engagement. John, you are demonic because you are a picture of holiness. And Jesus, you are worldly and sinful because you're offering something um, that actually is grace. It's amazing. People fly in the face of the gospel and try to try to get at it from both sides. It's as if someone's heart is the front door of the heart is closed. I'm closed to John the Baptist message that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And then the back door of their heart is closed. Say I'm closed to Jesus who's healing people, meeting with tax gatherers and sinners and loving people to Jesus, loving people to himself through engagement. Look at verse 19. The son of man, this is the title Jesus most used of himself. He used it scores of times for himself, um, which is a reference to Daniel 7, how the son of man will come in the clouds. Jesus is saying, I am the son of man. I am the God man. The son of man came. What did he do? He came, you know, the vision of Daniel 7 is in the clouds. That's the future. But he came down here in the front door to meet with tax gatherers to meet with Matthew, the author, to meet with the one who was bilking the system, working hypocritically against Jewish brethren, working for Rome, skimming um, the money for himself. But you, Jesus, became a friend. Do you see that? Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, the harlots, those accused of harlotry, those who were actually like uh, Mary who had been Um, delivered of demons, uh, a worldly woman who was brought to Christ, tax collectors, sinners. You're you're eating to excess. You're eating rich foods. You're drinking wine. You're, You're a drunkard. You're overeating and you're drunk all the time. That's the accusation. So Jesus, who never sinned, who couldn't sin, who was loving people, meeting people where they were at in terms of social norms, in homes, hospitality, engaging them with the message, loving sinners, is accused of being worldly and sinful and out of control. John, you have a demon. Jesus, you're out of control. That's what it looks like to be hard-hearted and to be asleep on this message. To be sleeping on Jesus, to be saying, I don't care. I don't care. It's dangerous. There's only one remedy for a heart this hard, and that is judgment preaching. Judgment preaching. The only way to break through to a recalcitrant child is to warn them. If you let your child go without warning... If you just give them things or ignore your rebellious child in your home, you're not being loving to that child at all. 
We don't want to abuse a child, but you want to warn a child. You want to warn your teenager. You want to warn your young adult and say, if you do this or if you don't stop doing this, this is what it's going to look like. Sowing and reaping. You want to help your child because you love that child. I've heard it said in um, cultural you know, parenting that you don't want to be a friend to your child. You want to be a parent to your child. There's some truth in that. You have to sacrifice some friendship to give some judgment parenting. If you make your child into an idol, you'll sacrifice your child from what your child truly needs to hear. In our world, it needs to hear judgment. In our cities, it needs to hear judgment. I was listening to MacArthur um, talk about the so the romance with cities that the church has these days, you know, we're, we're trying to reach the cities. It's the, these are the influence centers for our world. And that's how you, you, you really are doing it in the gospel work as you're reaching the cities through social justice and through do-gooding. I'm not saying we're not supposed to do things for the city, but, but he said, what does the city most need? Most of all, they need to hear judgment is coming. They need to hear the truth. They need to see their sin. I understand James too. We're not to harden our heart to someone in need ever. You know, how can you be a believer if you do that? If you see someone in need and you pass them by, there's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Faith without works is a dead faith. That's true. But don't put the works into the faith and make it the same thing. The works are the fruit of faith. It's always that. It's root and fruit. If you try to make the fruit, the gospel itself, you don't have Protestant Christianity. You have a form of Roman Catholicism where you're trying to justify yourself by what you're doing. And that's a false gospel and it will send you to hell. It will. If you believe in works to save, you're outside of, Rome, uh, you're outside of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through what? Through works? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves... It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to perform good works that he prepared beforehand for us to do, for us to walk in. It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, but it's just the idea. There is the vindication that you're a real Christian by the fruit of the Spirit, by things that you do, by melting with compassion for people. But you're not going to melt if you don't hear the message of judgment and repent of your sins, and then you'll do the works. You don't want to put the cart before the horse. And Jesus was very clear on this. And he's saying there is fruit in the message of judgment. Look at verse 19 at the end. It says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. He personifies wisdom here, just like the author of Proverbs, just like Solomon's Proverbs, where he's talking about wisdom cries in the streets and says, come, follow me. Don't follow the wicked ways. Follow me. Wisdom is um, personified as um, that which... Um, is, is likened to gold and silver and something you should love, wisdom. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm acting in wisdom here. Look at the, the wise actions of healings and the wise words that he's teaching, and that's justifying his deeds. It's justifying why John separated himself. The message is justified in why Jesus engaged and ate with tax collectors and sinners because these deeds are justified because this message is wise. It, it opens people's eyes to see that Jesus is Lord. Remember, we're in the end of the earlier messages in verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Do you see the kingdom of God that John was preaching? Do you see that the kingdom of God is here because I'm here? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The ears are clogged. The eyes are closed. If you're just kind of half asleep, half awake on Jesus, the kingdom of God sweeps by and you end up missing him and you could find yourself in hell. Who's supposed to teach this message? We are. We are. People are ignoring the Lord. People are mocking the Lord. And then I want to dip my toe into the beginnings of this next section, which is people are acting in presumption, presumptuous sins. Two sins that I want to talk about in this message. One is indifference. The second is presumption. People are presumptuous about Jesus. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I'm just going to skim the cream on these verses, but the point is that these are places, these are three dominant cities where Jesus performed a lot of miracles. A lot. And we know from the past passages before that in Capernaum, there were a lot of miracles that were performed at Peter's house, right? Where there were a lot all night. He was winning, he was winning people and helping people and healing people and raising people from the dead. And then he would preach a message. And his message was true because his miracles were true. A true teacher is performing true miracles. A false teacher, like we see all over the place in, you know, Christianized TV, where you have false teachers who are performing fake miracles, they have a fake message. They go hand in hand. Jesus performed real miracles because he had a real message. He was preaching truth. And so what you have is a validation of a message. People are, they're, they're, they're missing Jesus's message, not because it's not out there, not because it's not preached, not because it's not something you can hear or download or encounter. They're just asleep and they're being presumptuous. They're assuming they're fine. Many kids, they hear messages in Awana. They hear messages in Sunday school. You hear messages at Grace Christian School. You hear gospel messages in chapel. You hear gospel messages at church in the pulpit. You know, right now you're hearing messages. You're hearing truth all the time. Will you presume upon the Lord to be indifferent to the message that you're hearing? Will you presume upon the Lord to ignore or to, worse yet, mock it? Well, you know, that was kind of weird. Well, I'm kind of just going to laugh that off. That's what people do. And presumptuous sin sends you to hell. You're more accountable to God and his truth by hearing this message today than you were before you heard this message today. That's how it works. It's scary. Uh, every preacher, every teacher of God's word will incur a stricter judgment. James 3.1 says it's terrifying. 30 years in pastoral ministry almost, I, you know, in training and in um, doing I've heard a lot of sermons. I've studied a lot for sermons. I've studied a lot in Bible class, and it's terrifying for how much I'm accountable to follow, obey, listen to, repent of, see in my own life. I'm accountable under a huge looking glass from the Lord. James chapter 1, I think it says 
that, you know, when we look into the perfect law of liberty and see who we are and forget what we've seen, we're just under this conviction where we're under this, this, um, this chastisement of the Lord. We have to be careful to uh, not be forgetful hearers, but doers of the word of God. That's the flowing context of James 1, 23 and following. We need to see our sin. Don't be lured away from this discussion that Jesus is setting, this tone that Jesus is setting with the social gospel. Don't be lured away by saying, well, I can band-aid all of this and make myself feel better about how the world wants me on eggshells and how, you know, I feel bad about my own sin, so I'm just going to do a bunch of stuff and stay asleep and hit the snooze alarm on Jesus. Don't do that. Deal with your sin. Repent. See yourself in the mirror of the word of God, what's reflecting back to you, what's not reflecting back to you. Do business with God. Get with him and follow this true gospel. There's a lot more to say. They were refusing to repent. The word repentance is used a couple times in this text. It says that because they were refusing to repent, Jesus, look at this, verse 20, began to denounce the cities. That's a strong word. This is strong preaching. Denunciation, according to the Expositor's Bible commentary, conveys strong indignation and includes insults or justifiable approach. If you denounce someone, it'll beg for immediate criticism. We're called to do it. Point two, not only did they refuse to repent, but they also rejected ample revelation. Ample revelation. Again, Chorazin, Bethsaida, they're mentioned only here in this context of, uh, you know, in the Gospels. We know nothing really about those places um, in terms of Jesus' ministry. We know a lot was done there, though. Chorazin, according to Barclay, was a town an hour's journey north of Capernaum, Bethsaida, a fishing village on the west bank of Jordan. Um, River entered the northern end of the lake. Clearly, the most tremendous things happened to these towns, and yet we have no account of them whatever. There is no record of the Gospels of which of the work Jesus did there and the wonders he performed in these places, yet they must have been amongst the greatest, and the passages show uh, us little and how much little we truly know about Jesus in terms of his ministry, the magnitude of it. It's amazing to think about. John 21, 25, but there are also many other things Jesus did. Wherever, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Barclay says, this passage of Matthew is one of the proofs of that saying. It's amazing. We don't have a full account of Jesus' life, but there were miracles going on all the time. And people are rejecting In this context, Jesus on the face of things. Don't be someone in this generation who acts like a child who says, I'm indifferent to Jesus. I'm indifferent to the power of the gospel. I'm indifferent to God's word. Don't fall into the sin of presumption. I've got all the time in the world to just sleep in on God and not think about with whom I have to give an account. Repent of your sins. Believe. Be strong in the Lord. Be like Joseph who sees the stewardship of everything that he had. Remember Joseph in Genesis 39 with Potiphar's wife 
like representing the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. Sin with me. Sin. He goes, how can I do such a thing? I can't do that. I've been entrusted by Potiphar. All of these things, his whole household, I've been given so much. So why would I let my heart go in that direction? Josiah, who discovered the Torah in, in, as a young 18-year-old who called Judah to repentance, saying the great wrath of God is coming. Luke 17, where Jesus said, in the days of Noah, the son of man, so it will be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving over in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, in the day of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all and it will be on the day when the son of man is revealed luke 17 26 this is a warning that cannot go rejected you cannot ignore the lord and get away with it there is no neutral in eternity indifference is damnable Barclay went on and he said, these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, they did not attack Jesus Christ. They did not drive him from their gates. They did not seek to crucify him. They, did, they simply disregarded him. Listen to what he says. Neglect can kill as much as persecution can. The author writes a book. It is sent out for review. Some reviewers may praise it. Others may damn it. It does not matter so long as it is noticed. The one thing which will kill a book stone dead is if it is never noticed at all for either praise or blame. It'll kill you dead if you do nothing with Jesus. Do business with the Lord. Repent. Trust in him. Be the child. That's the good child, not the bad child. Be the infant, not the middle schooler. (laughs) No offense to the middle schoolers. Later on in Matthew 11, in verse 25, it'll talk about how the Lord reveals himself. Different word for children here, but to little children. That's who we want to be.